Colossians. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, New Testament. The book of Colossians. This morning, uh, we're just going to kind of do a basic intro into the book, and then we'll really start going through bit by bit, verse by verse, what the Apostle Paul has to say to us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. If you got it, would you say, I got it? Let's go. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. That's as far as we're going to make it this morning. <laughs> when I say we go through the Bible, verse by verse, I mean it, right? So we're beginning to open up our hearts and our minds to a book of the Bible written by a person. And the first question I want us to ask is, why should I care? Why should I care? Why should I care what the book of Colossians, written to the church in Coloss by this Apostle Paul, did he make himself an apostle? Can I just start putting that title? Hi, I'm Apostle Caleb now, right? Can we just make this title up for ourselves? Why should we listen to anything this guy has to say? Now, when I was growing up, I had a very rebellious attitude. If there was an authority over me, it was my job to overthrow it. And most of you are probably not familiar with this movie, but there was a movie called The Wild One. It was starring Marlon Brando. It was an old black and white motorcycle movie. And there was a line in it where this girl walks up to Marlon Brando, and he's covered in biker leather, and he's with his biker gang. And she says, what are you rebelling against? And he just looks at her, and he says, what do you got? And I loved that. I would bring my friends over. I'm like, you got to watch this movie. And they would just be weird. Like, why are we watching a cheesy, like, 1950s motorcycle rebel movie? But I was like, but this one line comes. And that was kind of my motto. It's like, what are you rebelling against, Caleb? And I was just, what do you got? What do you got? Because anything, I wanted to rebel. And then what I began to learn is rebellion is just another form of conforming. That the real rebellion is actually Christianity. So when I, uh, when I was in my rebellious years, I would go to IHOP at like 2 a.m. And there would often be the, uh, what we call the goth kids. Y'all know what goth is? Some of you do, some of you don't, right? So a goth kid would be the teenager that would wear all black and they'd have like big black army boots on. And sometimes they would paint their fingernails black and they would have long hair, right? And they would all gather together in a group. Now, if you got one of them by themselves and you say, why, why are you dressed this way? What is it about this? Oh, I just want to be an individual. This is just who I am. I'm asserting my independence. And in a normal crowd of school kids, they would stand out. They would look different. But then at IHOP at 2 a.m., they were all together and they all looked exactly the same. So their rebellion from one culture was just merely conforming to another culture. And this is what happens with rebellion. You can say, no, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not like you. I'm not like that. I'm like this. And I could very quickly probably go through and say, well, actually, 
your rebellion from this is just conforming to this. It's not really a rebellion. You just conform to a different image. And so I want to know, who should I listen to? Paul, in fact, he says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's this idea of don't conform to who or what the world tells you to be, but let God's word and spirit transform you into who you were meant to be. But that's the question is, if I'm going to allow God to transform me, I don't want to conform to the way the world is, whether it's, it's the goth kids or the popular kids. There were, when I was in high school, there was the Abercrombie kids. and There were all these different groups, and I'm trying to figure out which one do I belong to. Then the question is, what I'm really asking is, who am I? Who am I? And the person that you allow to tell you who you are is of utmost importance. It is dangerous to allow the wrong voices into your head to tell you who you are. I've seen many times over where there will be like a nice young man who falls in love with a girl who doesn't go to church, doesn't love Jesus, and all of a sudden that girl has gained full power over this young middle school or high school boy to tell him who he should be. And that can happen vice versa as well. How many of you have known like a nice Christian girl and all of a sudden she falls in love with a guy who doesn't love Jesus and and they just disappear off the face of the earth and you don't see him anymore? Well, why is it? Because they have allowed that person to say, here is who you are. Real rebellion, which I think Christianity is, you know, Protestant, the short version of that is to protest, right? Real rebellion is to say, I only care who God says I am. I want to know who God says I am, what God says I should be doing, because he is the one who made me. He is the one who knows me. He is the one who designed me for a purpose and put me in this very place and time. And that's good. We would all agree with that. But now we're going to let Paul, and we say, wait, wait, wait. I thought you said God is the only one who could tell me who I should be and what I should be doing. That's right. And we believe Scripture is inspired by God that Paul is writing under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is communicating exactly what God wants to tell you in your heart, mind, soul, and body. But before we get to Paul, I want us to look at a gentleman named Saul. If you got your Bible, turn to Acts, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We're going to be introduced to a character named Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We'll be in Acts for most of this morning. You got it? Okay. This is uh, Stephen. This is the ending of a little sermon that he is giving to some friends of his. Uh, He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen starts off with some strong words. He's looking at a group of people, and uh, he's basically saying, Look, you're not listening to what Jesus had to say, but big surprise, you didn't listen to the prophets that said Jesus was coming. And you love your Jewish faith, but guess what? Your forefathers didn't listen to those prophets either. 
In fact, I think the great history of the Old Testament is adventures and missing the point. You're like, oh, if Moses was around today, I would listen to Moses. Nobody listened to Moses, right? Very few people listened to Moses. And that's just the history of humanity. God sends somebody to send a clear message, and they go, we're busy, right? But we like our toys. Go away. And so Stephen is telling them, he's like, hey, uh, you need to be listening because you have a history of not paying attention. And how do you think they responded to this? Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So um, this is the first martyr of the new church. He's preaching a sermon to Jewish people. Yeah, it's kind of an aggressive sermon, but it's factual it's honest they don't like what they're hearing so they drag him outside of the city they get their rocks and they begin to stone him to death what i love is at the end right before he dies he says father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing where do you think he learned that from from jesus See, this is what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who imitates their rabbi. Jesus was his rabbi. And now that he finds himself being killed for saying the same thing that Jesus said, he just repeats what he saw Jesus do. Man, I wish we had more people that just, just repeated what Jesus did. This is what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. We just imitate Christ. We just do our best every day to live and act and talk and love and pray the same way Jesus did. Now, it tells you who they laid their coats at. Why did they lay their coats down? And I thought maybe there was some deep meaning behind that. I, I was looking through commentaries trying to figure out, I wonder why it mentions that. Well, really all it is is they took off their outer garments so they could throw rocks harder. They just had to take off their jackets so they could, really, they could really wind up to stone this man to death. But they lay it at the feet of Saul. And then we're going to hear a little bit more about this person, Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. How hard is your heart? If you can watch a man being stoned to death. Cross your arms and say, that was a good day. How hard is your heart that you can watch someone pelted with rock after rock till their body is limp and lifeless and say, that was a good day today. To be excited about it. Well, that's how hard of a heart Saul had. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this person Saul that we're introduced to is not only approving of the stoning, he wants more. He is so zealous in his faith that he is not satisfied with the murder of one Christian. He is going new house to house, and it says he drags men and women, dragging them out of their house and throwing them in jail in order to be stoned. What a horrible human being this man is. But something is going to happen to this man. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, what is the way? He's looking for people that are followers of the way. Well, that was the earliest terminology used for Christians. They were followers of the way. Why was it called the way? Why were early Christians called followers of the way? It's very simple. It's for the way that they lived. It's just the way that they lived. It was radical. Do you know in a world of deceit, thief, and greed, grace, kindness, and generosity is rebellious? In a world of like hierarchies at work and everywhere else you go, when the Bible says no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for another. That is rebellious. That is rebellious. Like the highest uh, uh, on social needs, uh, the way you are wired, self-preservation is like one of the highest human needs. We love for people, but then if there's a fire, all of a sudden everybody just runs for the exits for themselves. But the Christian is supposed to be the one who says, look, I'll lay down my life for other people. It's the opposite of self-preservation. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now the way the story on this section ends is that he goes, and there was a man who was waiting. Um, there was a Christian that was in this town, and Saul essentially shows up and knocks on the door, and he says, hey, I'm Saul. Um, I need to talk to the Christian here. And if you're a Christian, you've heard about this man who's basically a Christian hunter, right? He hunts Christians. So you get that knock on the door, you're like, who is it? It's Saul. No one's home. <laughs> Dave's not here, right? And uh, <laughs> he opens the door, prays for the man. Scales fall off his eyes, and now he can see. And from essentially Acts the 13th chapter on, this man Saul begins to be called by his Roman name. Paul. He has seen the resurrected Jesus, 
in a way the other disciples hadn't. He had an encounter on this road to Damascus. And he becomes one of the apostles, though one untimely born. Meaning, he didn't become an apostle in the way the other ones did. It's the the way the New Testament describes his apostleship. That it was different than the others. And he goes on to write 14, uh, maybe 15 of the New Testament books in your Bible. He wrote more in the New Testament than anyone else. He was an intelligent man. He studied under one of the most well-known rabbis of his time. He was most likely on his way to a great political career because he was extremely zealous for his faith. So he had all the credentials. His life was going great. He was persecuting Christians, which was quite popular at the time. And then all of a sudden, his life is transformed. But of course, now he's a Christian because now his life is going to be much easier and he's going to get all the things he's always wanted. He's going to name it and claim it and he's going to have a big mansion and great. Is that what happens to him? Let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this person that we're going to learn from. You know, I'll get there in a second. Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Just right before Colossians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. We learn a little bit about the qualifications of Paul. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. He's basically telling the other Jewish people, you think you're Jewish, I'm more Jewish than you are. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kept the law. Everything in my life has been structured around maintaining the legalistic rule set that had been developed. Then he goes, Circumcised, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, this is a radical statement because he says, I have lost everything. I have lost everything for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, the man who murdered people participated in the murder of people simply because they would claim that Jesus is Lord of lords, God of gods, is now saying, I have lost my entire social status, my education, my trajectory as an individual. I have lost everything, and I had more to lose than you. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I consider it all rubbish. Now, our Bible translators They had to pick a word. They picked the word rubbish. But the word that they're translating from is the word scubalone. And in many ways, it's it's like a borderline offensive word. Some of your moms might call it a bad word, right? But it means animal dung. He looks at all that his life had been 
And he says, compared to the greatness of knowing God, my job, my career, my social status, he says, all of that stuff is just a big pile of manure compared to knowing the Jesus Christ. And as I read that, I have to ask myself, do I consider all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ? Or do I have Jesus Christ and some stuff that's pretty good over here? Like, I, I want to walk, all of us, we want to walk a tightrope of like halfway in the world, halfway obedient to Jesus. It's really hard to do because both the world and Jesus say, come, beckon, obey, right? They both beckon us. They call to us. It's like God in the garden saying, I provided everything for you with the serpent going, yeah, but I got a little bit extra. You try to straddle the fence and walk both sides and it doesn't work. Do I consider all things rubbish? We also learn about the suffering of Paul. Paul did not, there, there's reasons people lie, you know that, right? Like there's, there's kind of historical reasons why people lie. Power, money, the list goes on. And so when people often ask, well, how do you know the disciples were telling the truth? I say, give me an ulterior motive other than them just simply telling the truth. Is there an ulterior motive to them saying they saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Did the disciples, like, get tons of fame? Were they popular? No, they're chased out of one town to the next. Did they get lots of money? No, we, from church history, what we understand is that all but maybe the Apostle John was martyred. John just happened to die of old age in prison, right? So it's not like they gained anything by worldly standards. But what they did gain was obedience and the favor of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, just let me read to you. This is Paul kind of just describing his week. <laughs> Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, meaning like they almost killed me, but they didn't because it was 40 minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. In danger at sea and in danger from false believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? This is but a brief glimpse of the man who was Paul who gave up everything and traded it for a life of shipwrecked beatings. I love that he says, I'm hated by the Jews and I'm hated by the Gentiles. Those are the only two people groups, <laughs> right? Because Gentile just means non-Jew, right? So it's like, I'm hated by this side, I'm hated by this side, right? And some of you might be familiar with that. Some of you, you're like, look, Republicans don't like me. Democrats don't like me. You're, you're politically homeless, right? And that's how he feels. He's like, man, I, everywhere I go, I'm chased out of some town. He's like, I'm not safe in the city. I'm not safe in the country. 
And he says on top of all of that, he says, my heart aches and is concerned for this new blossoming church. Turn just a few pages over to Colossians chapter 1. So when we say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. What was Paul's conversion like? Was he looking, was he looking for faith? Was he on a spiritual journey? Was he searching? Was he reflecting? No, he was hijacked. He was kidnapped by love. He was rescued out of his sinfulness by grace. And he was put on a path unlike one he could ever imagine. And because of what God did, he was made an apostle. Not anybody who says, oh, I made myself an apostle, or if they introduce themselves as an apostle, like a little red flag goes up in my head. Because this is what an apostle went through. He has earned that title by being a servant of servants, by sacrificing his very life in order to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's why we listen to him. That's why we listen. Because he has shown time and time again that he is obedient to the will and word of God. Even when he could boast, he would say, I would merely just boast in my weakness. Paul writes 14 books of the 27 books in the New Testament. Paul, as a thought leader, is more influential historically than Socrates or Plato. Paul, as a thought leader, is more influential than someone like Socrates or Plato. He's, I, I would say, as a thought leader, he's just under Jesus. The influence he's had on the church, our theology, and the Western world is hard to measure because it's so massive. And all he is doing is listening and repeating what he knows about Jesus Christ. Colossians is part of his prison epistles, which Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all written in jail. This is a man, he's under house arrest in Rome, and he is writing to churches. And it's not, hey guys, please bail me out. It's really hard in here. He's like, hey, I'm concerned for you. My love is for you. I'm here for you. Remember, don't forget Christ. And one of the reasons that we are going to work our way through the book of Colossians is because it is so heavily Christ-centered. It is a book full of Christology. It's just the theology of who is Jesus Christ. It's absolutely be beautiful and poetic, especially in the first couple of chapters. So let me end with a question for today. Two questions. Who do you listen to? Who has authority over your life? Who has authority over your life? Who can speak truth into your life that you will listen to whether you like it or not? Because a lot of us say, oh, I have some authorities in my life. But as soon as they say something you don't like, they're no longer an authority in your life because you just go somewhere else. You know, uh, this is one of the things that I love about having elders. Believe it or not, people don't always agree with me, right? <laughs> I mean, you call yourselves crazy, but people don't, don't always agree with me. And I have to make sure my life is open for correction and criticism. And you do too. You do too. You have to make sure that your life is open 
for correction or criticism? What if I was to call some of you guys and say, um, you know, I haven't seen you in four months. Where you been? You know, Bible says don't forsake the gathering of believers. And you got mad. I can't believe you would call and say that to me. I'm never coming to your church again. Well, then I'm not really your pastor. Right? I'm a guy you would conveniently show up to hear give a lecture. But to have somebody as a pastor to say, hey, I, I want you to tell me how I can love Jesus better. And I'm going to give you that authority in my life. Trust me, that scares me just as much as it scares you. Right? That's terrifying. I said, I don't, want to, I don't want that kind of responsibility. And the elders, they, they tell me, and I have to listen, right? This is why I appreciate Dennis so much. Like, Dennis can tell me, hey, that was, sermon was not good at all. You were totally awful. And, and, and he doesn't mean it out of a place of, and he wouldn't say that. He doesn't mean it out of a place of negativity. It's because he loves me enough to keep me from making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Who do you have that is an authority in your life? And have you tested and examined that authority? Can I tell you who your authority should be? That book right there is inspired by God. His Holy Spirit. We use the very words on that page to just transform your life in a radical way. So I could come to you and be like, hey, I think you should do this or do that. And if I'm contrary to Scripture, then you can turn around and rebuke me. Because I am not an ultimate authority. That is your ultimate authority. I'm wrong from time to time. I make mistakes all the time, right? Same as you do. But we work hard and we are very careful to make sure that when you show up on a Sunday morning, you're not hearing my opinion. Because nobody cares about my opinion. I want to know what does God say? What does God say? Who is your authority? That's question number one. Question number two is, are you listening? Because it's easy to say I have an authority, but you can have an authority you never listen to. What is your authority, and are you listening? There's an old hymn that says, trust and obey. How's the rest of it go? For there is no other way? Yeah, trust and obey, <laughs> for there is no other way. And that's true. I trust what Paul is going to teach me. Would you guys go along on this journey with me in the book of Colossians that if Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says something that you disagree with, submit to Paul. Submit to the, submit to the word. Can we go on that journey together? Okay, I'm gonna pray.